go. Welcome to another episode of Overthoughts, uh, our little side venture on the Overthink Podcast Network, where we talk about just random things we enjoy. Uh, I'm your host, Jason Helms, and today we'll be talking about a special double feature of Jeremy Sonier movies. Uh, we're going to talk about Blue Ruin from 2013 and Green Room from 2015. And before I introduce anyone else, I just want to say these are excellent, excellent movies. Uh, Green Room is available on Amazon Prime uh, streaming and uh, Blue Ruin you can rent in various forms. I would recommend you go watch both of these. Uh, they both are fairly disturbing, uh, pretty intense. Uh, just get set for that. Gory. Lots of gore. Medium but, amount of gore. Okay, medium amount of gore, but it's troubling. Yes. So see them both because we're going to spoil everything going forward. All right, with that out of the way, as I said, I'm Jason Helms. I'm your host, and we'll go around the room because we're actually face-to-face this time for once. So if this sounds a little better, uh, that's why. If it sounds a little worse, that's also why. So next up is Brent Peterson. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. Uh, I'm honored to be the novice of this group, I would say. Oh, I say. come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, though. For years. It's true, though. I, yeah. I kind of feel like the, more like the common man, like in this, in, the, in my opinion on this a little bit, so I'm excited to talk you're about it. You're our everyday hero, Brent. Yeah. That's, <laughs> thanks, guys. Stop. There you go. Okay, you make there me you blush go. over here. <laughs> oh. I, uh, yeah, I, I had a great time watching the, both these movies last night. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Most of both of these movies. Most of, oh, that's a good point. Wow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I only missed oh, no. the really yes. important parts. Oh. It was fine. Yeah. We already <laughs> did a, an unplanned rehearsal of this podcast yeah. by catching you up on 20 minutes of green It's room. true. <laughs> and that voice you just heard was uh, Dominic Lang. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be in the same room with everyone. We've actually been together quite a bit over the past few days. Uh, we just got back from a backpacking trip. Uh, and so we are well versed in having this multi-part conversation. So, happy to be here. And if Brent is the cinematic novice, Dom is the cinematic expert. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. I can't think of a better way, by the way, to finish our last day of hiking than doing this right now. This is is the perfect hike right here. Yes. (laughs) We were on microphones. We did spend a lot of time during the backpacking trip talking about what we could possibly podcast about. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It took us like five days to figure it out. We finally found it, though. So, well done. Yeah, we didn't decide it either. We just... Went home and decided to watch movies. Yeah. Uh, that last voice you heard, though, was my brother, Ben Helms. Hey, oh, yeah. Happy to happy to be here. Happy to be hosting everyone and doing a podcast yes. in person. Those are always a little more fun. Yeah, I had to spend the morning listening to him edit out my ums mm-hmm. on a month episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's painful. Yeah, a lot of ums. So I will try to avoid my ums here. Give them a little bit less work. Uh, nope, nope. Uh, <laughs> you got to lean into the ums. Just lean into them. And let's start backwards because... We started with Green Room. We'd heard it was a good movie. We jumped into it. Uh, Initial reactions. Everybody seemed to like it. What makes this movie special? Yeah. What I initially responded to with Green Room is I like a horror movie that is very local. uh, And it feels like a haunted house horror story. So we're in one location. People are trapped. And the basic, the main goal is just get out alive. And... Uh, for those who haven't seen Green Room, it concerns a punk band who are traveling to kind of a remote location, and it turns out that it's a a club for neo-Nazis. And it's not spoiling anything in terms of you know that it's a club for neo-Nazis, uh, but very quickly, things spin out of control. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, the movie becomes far darker, far more interesting in terms of how 
the characters act and react and then react against each other mm-hmm. in those situations. And it allows the characters to shine by keeping the story simple. They're not adding a lot of extra parts to it. They could have, but they chose to keep the lens very tight on the characters. And I feel like that's why I was so engaged. But Brent, what was your kind of initial thoughts or responses to it? Going into both movies, actually. Uh, well, we watched Green Room first, but um, I like horror movies that that kind of fuck with my psyche yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, a good example of this is uh, a couple of years ago, Dom came up to, to my house in Seattle. We watched a movie called Hush, which is on Netflix, um, which basically involves a... Uh, a, a person who a girl who is uh, staying in a house by herself and she's deaf and she's basically haunted by this person who comes to the house to terrorize her um and so that kind of messed with my psyche because uh, i am a special education teacher i have a lot of students who are deaf so i personalize that oh, as like a person who is uh who cannot hear and is, and is deaf and and that person is going through something that i wouldn't say that i personally understand but i i I get it. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So um, watching Green Room for me kind of did that because I would say contemporarily right now, like we're seeing kind of a larger rise in the alt-right and white nationalism and Nazis and everything else. We're starting to hear more and more about it. Yeah. Um, it's almost as if something that it's it's always existed. Yeah. But we've, we're hearing so much more about it. So if anything, this kind of, kind of tickled that part of my brain a little bit because that's mm. something that's so prevalent right now. That's why this movie, uh, in some ways, scared me more so than the average um, horror film would. Yeah, I I think in terms of alt right, especially um, one thing, one kind of sub story here was people trying to get out yeah. of that life, yeah. uh, and that ended up bringing out a lot of different themes. That was really interesting. It was also exciting to see the anti-Nazi um, punk vibe going on. Mm-hmm. There's a great scene that happens early on where they go to this neo-Nazi show. And they they decide together, hey, I've got an idea. And they don't tell the viewer what the yeah. idea is mm-hmm. until they get on stage and they open with Nazi, Nazi punks. punks, fuck off. DK. By uh, the Dead Kennedys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> great line at the end of it. They're playing this song. People are throwing beers at them. People are just flipping them off as they're singing this because they're singing to a bunch of neo-Nazis. And they end the song and the lead singer just leans up to the mic and goes, that was a cover. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was looking for a horror movie that was less horror and more thriller. I think every time we talk about thrillers, I bring up the game, one yeah. of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Michael Douglas, mid nineties movie. Um, but it's, it's not gory as much as it is. It fucks with you. Like yes. I was saying, like mentally, it's a psychological thriller the whole time. You're trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure it out. You feel like you're stuck, uh, suspenseful the whole time. And I thought green room half hour in when they're in the green room, yeah. uh, and kind of the main, premise has happened and they're stuck in the green room. They mm-hmm. push the couch. They lock themselves in there. Uh, I thought we were in the green room the rest of the time. I thought yeah. it was going to be like, like saw yes. or something that was yes. like, we're in the green room. Things are going to be happening to the green room from right. the externally. Yeah. And we don't know. And then Patrick Stewart shows up mm-hmm. and you, you follow Gabe, one of the other guys, and you, you see everything happening around the venue and around the green room. And I was like, Oh, this is different. Yes. This isn't following, following the normal tropes of claustrophobic kind of internal, I know you talked about one location, but it was one location and it was the entire correct, yeah, entire venue inside and out. It wasn't just isolated to the one room, which I was I was happy to see yeah. that it wasn't falling into the at times lazy tropes of like this is just going to be one room sure. and it's going to feel very suspenseful that way. But the idea that you can still show all of the characters and all of their 
desires and actions the whole time and it still be terrifying. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of a, a next level horror movie. Yeah, and they actually repeatedly got out of the green room mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. to go back in just mm-hmm. like a few minutes later. Right. Totally. And it yeah. keeps giving you this promise of, oh, we're finally out of the green room. No, no, something happened. We're back in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, and we talked about even yesterday about it's comparable to the Stephen King horror idea of the most terrifying monsters are the people. Yeah. The most horrific things that happen to people are the ones done by people. Yeah. And so these acts that happen to the characters in, in Green Room are perpetrated by Patrick Stewart and the neo-Nazi group and the right. people right. that are around them. And even to your point, Ben, about the location and the perspectives, uh, Sonia in Green Room and definitely Blue Rune also establishes space well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you can trust where everything is in relation to each other. And so there's no trickery. Right, which is horror movies rely on that trickery. Horror is jump scare, false. Like, you just put a corner in a movie to have a beat of a false scare, and then you move on. There's no context or consequence for having incorrect geography. Whereas for him, geography is super important. Right. Think about like Blair Witch. Most of the movie is scary because you don't know where you are at any time. Well, they lost the maps. Yeah. Right. Well, they they didn't know where they yeah. were either. I think that um, another thing that that kept coming to me as we were watching the the movie too was how the green room transformed from a place where the um, kind of the rising action occurred, where like something happened and we don't know what happened, and it was this scary moment. Yeah. It was the first real scary moment of the of the movie, really. Yeah. Um, and even though I wasn't there for it, you guys described it to me very <laughs> well. So yes, we did. But like the green room became a location of horror. And then by the end of the movie, the green room almost becomes a location of safety because they keep going back to the yeah. green room yeah. uh, multiple times, actually. And it ends up becoming the place where they, um, they eventually try to trick two of the, I think it was the the, the red shoelace yes. um, yeah, the red red laces. guys, the red laces that, that came back in to, to get them and everything. And then um, and it becomes this this safety zone almost by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not safe. Don't get me don't get me wrong, but it, it becomes a place of, of retreat. Um, for pe- the people that were inside for the punk band and everything else, yeah, um, yeah, and but like I, I just in general like my very basic observation too of the movie was um, it's called Green Room, but a lot of the movie does take place not just in the green room but outside the green room um, within the the club that they were in. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the movie, the the movie ends in a forest pretty much, and that is a lot of green space. Yeah. So like yeah. what the the green room expands from this one isolated you know, I don't know how many square foot room to uh, a, a huge expanse of yeah. green mm-hmm. um, by the end of it. Yeah, I was thinking um, we could kind of use this as a point to transition to Blue Ruin, but first just to talk about Macon Blair, yeah. uh, the, the actor that carries over, one of two actors that carries over between mm-hmm. uh, both films, but maybe just his role in Green Room first because he really hooked us as an actor, not knowing him before. Mm-hmm. All of us were really struck by Macon Blair who has a kind of a minor part, but steals the show in a lot of ways. Yes, definitely. When you first meet Macon's character in Green Room, his character is Gabe, Gabe. I believe, yes. Mm -hmm. So when you first meet Gabe, it's right after, spoilers, so uh, Aaliyah Shawcat, who plays the guitarist in the punk band, The Ain't Rights, Aaliyah comes back after they play their set. She's forgotten her phone and her charger. And so Anton Yelkin plays the bassist he says i'll go get it he goes back to the green room 
and sees that there's another band and a dead body, a girl with a, with a knife through her head. And that's when all shit falls apart. Yeah. Uh, and so Gabe is the first person who gets everyone in the same place and says, hey, it's going to be okay. Everyone calm down. We have this under control. And so my first impression was, okay, Gabe's the fixer yeah. in this mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gabe has seen this kind of shit before. He knows how to handle it, how to keep everyone cool. He's basically Jules in yes. Pulp Fiction. Yes. It's like, everybody's going to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> and as the movie progresses, you see more and more people above and around him who are actually in charge of fixing, who can actually give him commands to carry things out. And you see like, oh, Gabe actually has less and less power. And in you could argue more and more empathy yes. for the characters, for our protagonists, mm-hmm. who are one by one dying off. Yeah. And so the more or the less outside external power he has, the more internal dimension he has. Yes. Yeah, by the end of the film, he's literally mopping up. Yes. You know, he's 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 the mop, he's the janitor. Yeah. He's completely demoted. Yeah. And yet, in a moment of his promotion within the neo-Nazi ranks. Right. Yes. Yeah. Here are your red laces. Go yeah. clean up the bar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of shows how meaningless that promotion exactly. is. Yes. Yeah. It's more of an inspiration than an actual meaningful yeah. rank or anything. Yeah. And in terms of I don't I don't think we were aware of Macon's carryover. From Blue Ruin to mm-hmm. Green Room. So Blue Ruin opens very slowly. It's a, it's a far more contemplative opening. Mm-hmm. And it opens with what I perceive to be a homeless individual. Yeah. Uh, he had basically been squatting in a family's house. He's taking a shower, washing up. The family comes home. He sneaks out the bathroom window. And we see kind of vignettes of his life. Mm-hmm. One quick correction, because yes. he was taking a bath, and I respect a man who takes a bath. Wow. That's important it's disgusting. to me. That's true. I it's lo- disgusting. I love a bath. Love wow. a bath. I like people that, that clean. No, Let, baths are not about cleaning. Let the record show that Jason Helms loves a good bath. Love a bath. I like people that don't clean themselves too much. Mm. I just, I'm, I'm stunned by the phrase, baths are not for cleaning. They're not. I mean, you're sitting in your own Yeah. You're sitting in your no, own No, you filth. clean first. Yeah. Clean first, and then you soak. Yeah, you soak. Maybe he did that. Bring it, a book. It could have been a combo yeah. shower bath. Yeah. He did the shower, then Just the bath. Relax. So now that we've clarified <laughs> yeah. that. Most important detail of the movie. Yes. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're done, right? Yeah. No, okay. we're done. <laughs> and after those vignettes, the the character whose name we don't know yet, mm. an officer knocks on his, on his car where he's been sleeping, knocks on his car window, and alerts him to a fact that somebody is going to be released from prison, somebody with whom he has a connection and obviously not a very good one. Right. And that stirs him to some sort of action. Uh, he he has, at this point, long hair and a very scraggly beard. He cuts that back, and that's when I realized that it was the same actor. It's Gabe! It's Gabe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there's such different performances, mm-hmm. but... He has such an expressive face, mm-hmm. you, such a face that you kind of you don't know where he's going to go, and it's it's almost an almost like a Peter Lorre face, oh. if you think about it. Yeah. yeah, because Peter Lorre could at once play sympathetic as well as villainous, right. and so that's what you needed yes. with Gabe, and with Dwight, you needed it to be someone who could be both 
very malevolent, very violent and acting out, but also someone very loving and someone you wanted to be with. Yes. And it, I mean, it's, it's a revenge film. Yes. Or, or it, it plays out like a revenge film, the second half of Blue Ruin, mm-hmm. but it's also an honorable thing in one sense that he's trying to save his family. Yes. So it has this dual nature of him going from weak to strong in a way that feels selfish and, and vengeful and vindictive, but is also like, oh, like I understand why he's doing this. Yeah. However, as the movie progresses, though, doesn't it become more ambiguous as far as like who yes. started what and yes. then where who, and why he's doing it? Yeah. And who's going to stop this? And right. I'm going to keep going. Are you going to keep going? Like, right. we should stop this. We should meet up, whatever it is. Yeah, like as the movie went on, I th- I felt at least it became way more ambiguous yeah. as to who is the person uh, in the right here. Which usually it goes the other way. It becomes right. more clear yeah. Yeah. as the movie goes on. Yeah, just to give you a little bit more of the plot, um, Dwight is the central character that Macon Blair plays. In Blue uh, Ruin, his, uh, his parents have been murdered and he uh, becomes a vigilante, taking to the, the streets at night, uh, striking fear into the hearts of criminals. Wow. Yeah. Did, so I, did I get it right? So he's Batman. He's Batman. Whoa, oh, he's yeah. Batman. Mm-hmm. He uh, dances with the devil in the pale moon. He absolutely does. Yes. Okay, that's that's not exactly <laughs> he right. He kills Jack Napier? <laughs> wow. Wow. And gonna oh, wow. Cool. Uh Dom, you did such a good recap last time. Do you want to take uh, Blue Ruin as well? Yeah, in terms of just my initial response. What the reca- uh, recap of the plot? Uh, yeah. Okay. Dwight is, again, at the, at the onset of the film, he's homeless and living far removed from civilization and has hermitized himself Mm. and an officer comes and tells him that someone again is being released from prison. And it turns out that this is the person he believes has murdered his parents. And the first action we see him take is to murder this person or trying to find and hunt down this person once he is released from prison. And this sets in motion a sequence of events that, becomes more and more tragic, more mm-hmm. and more uh, grisly and awkward and gruesome and just not clean. The stakes get raised every time, yeah. too. It's yeah, and it in that way, it reminded me of the Coen brothers yeah. when you take a lot of just average people who try and better their circumstances by pushing down on others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And progressively makes things worse. Yes. And I think that's even something that carries from Green Room and Blue Room together. Sonia doesn't keep things tidy. Like the equalizer, Denzel Washington, can move from scene to scene without mess. Right. There is mess and holdover from ever from scene to scene to scene. Hmm. And so with Blue Ruin, there's the initial murder that Dwight commits. But afterward, he goes to cut uh, cut a tire oh, in the vehicle and winds up slicing his hand. Yes. And it's, a, it's an impulsive act and nothing that you would see a professional do. Yeah. But because he's just all, he's your average person, he's all full of emotion and yeah. fear and anger, it happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that has an effect. And this theme of consequences and mess uh, happens at those micro levels like slashing the tire, but it's also the film overall uh, in that we slowly find out that, that this is you know, clearly not the inciting action, Dwight killing someone, but part of a larger feud between two families yeah. of which Dwight is only a part. And he's largely 
just cleaning up or dealing with the consequences of a mess that started 20 years earlier. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's really nice the way the, the, the micro and the macro kind of bleed together in this film. Yeah, so Dom, you mentioned that this movie kind of opens up really slowly, I guess. I don't know, I can't remember the wording you used, but yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely paced a lot slower. Something that impressed me really strongly about both both movies, how they were both, they felt independent, they felt very unique, but the pacing was an A-plus premiere, well, triple A title is my video game yeah. wording coming out, but no, it yeah. felt like felt like it was paced very well. There's never a time when I wanted to rush through a scene, there was never a time where I wanted it to slow down. Uh, I think the comparison I made earlier was like an MCU movie that's just like going, 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 going. You don't really get those moments to breathe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Green Room was the one that was more kind of a classic horror movie in its pacing, but it still had those moments where you get the paintball story, where you get all the moments mm-hmm. with Patrick Stewart where he slows down and talks to Gabe about what's going to happen. You get those moments to kind of breathe for a second before you get thrust into a guy getting his arm cut off or whatever like horrible thing is going to happen yes. next. So it's not just being it's not abusive in that way we're just getting constant action and then with blue ruin you get all of the i almost called him gabe yeah <laughs> all of the dwight the the macon blair scenes at the beginning that help you build into this world there's almost no dialogue the first 20 minutes or yeah, so yeah and then it it quickly you get those big fast scenes that are action filled that even the first one in the house is, or I guess it's not the first one. I guess the the scene where he's doing the, he's home alone in the house, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole goal of that isn't so he can obliterate these people or so they can come in and obliterate him. He's just trying to get out of the just house. Run away. Yeah. yeah. He turns on the light and then the, and the faucet upstairs just so he can run. Mm-hmm. And that scene was terrifying. Yeah. But the payoff is isn't bloody, isn't gory. It's he runs over a guy's leg and and gets out of there. Yeah. The the violence, uh, the setup to the violence is always long. Yes. And the violence itself is always quick. Yeah. Like yes. like real life violence is. It, yeah. it happens, I mean, just like Slash in the Terror. Yeah. Before anyone can really think about it. It's quick, it's messy, and things get out of control. And then the rest of the movie is dealing with those consequences right. and setting up the next level of violence. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that happens in Green Room when the band makes their first initial kind of rush out of the room. Two of the characters who, at that point, you could argue, have been the kind of leaders the lead singer and the drummer yeah. are taken out almost immediately yeah. mm-hmm. and in very intense, gruesome ways. Yeah. Uh, Reese, the drummer has been kind of the one who's holding down at least like physically everything and is eliminated just yeah. almost w- with ease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In, oh. in a very, like, it's like tra- climatically. Yes. No. In a yeah. very tragic way. And it's, it's almost kind of uh Janet Leigh or Janet Leaf from yes. Psycho. Yes. Oh, like yeah. You don't expect, like, you think, oh, this is going to be the character we follow throughout the movie. Right. And she's dead in the first third. Yeah. And so at that point, it's, Jade, you said it earlier, like, anybody could die at any yes. minute. Mm-hmm. Right. And that long setup to a quick violence sets up a really interesting pace. And I think yeah. there's a misconception of pace where, like an MCU movie, where that, like, everything's moving and people say, oh, it's a good pace. Right. That's a consistent pace, yeah. Yeah. which isn't necessarily good. Right. It can be, but that doesn't, consistency and quality aren't synonymous. Mm-hmm. And so a, a quality and thoughtful pacing are those moments of a little more contemplation followed by quick panicked violence and then aftermath mm-hmm. and moving on to the next scene. And so knowing when to push and when to pull right. And when to let things breathe and when to speed things up. And so 
there are those moments of intense confrontation followed by moments of contemplation. You definitely feel that in Blue Ruin. Yeah. And you feel it in Green Room, too, where there's the Nazi punks fuck off opener. And then the next song, Coronary, is silent. And it's all in slow motion. And you hear yeah. these long strings play. And you feel a more immersive atmosphere of like, oh, like this band is owning the moment. Yeah. And that's Sonia really knowing how to play with pace. In, yeah. In terms of music, and it, uh, so Green Room is all about punk, mm -hmm. right? And what's great to me is that other than Nazi punks fuck off, we don't get a lot of punk yeah. in terms of the music itself. Yeah. We're, there's a very early scene where they uh, go to a, a house and they're going to party. Yeah. And one of them, the party's just getting ready to start. There's all, a lot of buildup to it. One of them takes the record needle and just drops it onto the record and we hear one, two, three, four. And there's a quick cut. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a smash cut to the record spinning and just the needle dragging. Yeah. Probably on the same side, maybe on a completely different record. Yeah. Um, and the party is done. Mm -hmm. The next and, morning. Yeah. And we got all this setup that we're this is gonna be a punk movie. We're gonna find out all about punk. But what you need to know about punk is that it's, it says fuck you. Yeah. I'm not going to play this song for you that right. you wanted to hear. I'm going to give you all the build up. I'm not going to fulfill your expectations, hmm. which is that that's the most punk thing. Yeah. And that's why when the second, when during coronary, we don't hear coronary. Yes. We hear strings and see people dancing in slow motion. Uh, ironically, that's a kind of punk response to it. To get us back to Blue Ruin, because it was such a good movie. I don't want to pull away from it just because, you know, Green Room is also exciting to talk about. Yeah. Uh, Brent, what surprised you most about Blue Ruin? I, I think that it was what I said initially last night um, to our group Bradford happened to is I actually really enjoyed how the movie went from this completely open place where we, we, we see a man who is taking a bath at a stranger's house. He sneaks mm -hmm. out the house when the family comes home, um, ends up being uh, on the beach and we, what, and what can, we can only assume is a place where he is inhabited for a while and he is a homeless man and he's trying to survive and um, trying to figure out his, his way in the, in the world. Whereas um, by the end of the movie, it ends and yet yeah, spoiler alert, of course, but like it ends at a small country house in Kentucky. How in the world did we get from this place to this place? The bookends of the movie. Um, was it Kentucky? No, it, he said it was Kentucky, but that was a lie. So that nobody could track him. Oh, that's right. Phone. Yeah, that's it, right. Because the other guy responds, "You ever been to Kentucky, Dwight?" So do was, we do yeah. we know exactly where the house was then? I assume Virginia. In Virginia. I okay, so Virginia. I, it, it's still it's. It, I think that regardless of what state it was yeah, in, yeah, right. the mm -hmm. point is still valid it's because you go from this place. beach area, beautiful yeah. sun, everything is is great. Even though he's a homeless man, mm -hmm. um, you don't know the backstory of all the pain that he's gone through necessarily. Right. And then all of a sudden, as the movie goes on, you just get more and more and more layers of how messed up his life is and how messed up his family is and how messed up this other family is and even his abandoned friendship with uh is it Benny is that the yeah. other character name yeah. who's a great character yeah. to have in the movie too and then to have all of that culminate into this scene at a house which be became a moment that was between one family and another even though it was um four family members um versus just white and um, I think that even Dwight mentioned at the end, too, saying along the lines of, we got to this place, or I don't remember the exact line, but saying we got to this place because of my dad loved your mom. And I just, it was really enjoyable to see how something so wide and expansive in the first five minutes, where there's not a lot of dialogue, mm -hmm. turns into a lot more dialogue and a lot of just messy stuff happening 
in this one specific house in Virginia. Yeah, the that move from no dialogue to dialogue uh, is, was referenced by Benny earlier in the movie when he's telling Dwight when you so he's t- teaching Dwight about proper use of firearms and getting in the right mindset. And he tells Dwight, when you aim the gun, shoot the gun. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you're going to raise, if you're going to use this and bring it and, and aim the firearm, you intend to use it. Mm-hmm. No speeches, just go for it. And at the end of the movie, Dwight is giving a speech and he is shot during the speech and he eventually dies. And yet, one could argue that his move from speechless to speaking out and actually owning what he's doing, how he's feeling, why he's doing what he's doing, can be an arc of character growth. Mm. And maybe even just a question for everyone, thinking about Benny and Dwight and the, the people of Blue Ruin, I feel like I know why they are doing what they are doing, even if I disagree mm-hmm. with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something interesting that Sonia does is providing a logical justification without overlaying a moral judgment on them, except in like the global sense that it's like a tragedy right. that everyone winds up dead. Yeah, I think Jason, you brought up a simple plan. The yes. film, the film, a simple plan. That was a movie I was thinking of the whole time during Blue Ruin. Uh, I think Fargo more so the series than the movie as mm-hmm. well. You talked about Cohen, Tom, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of movies like that where they put the kind of the everyman in a, in an extraordinary situation. Maybe Breaking Bad is a, a great TV yeah. show example of that, where it's like, oh, I can see every step along the way. Like, oh, if I was in that situation, like I maybe in an extreme day i might make a similar choice to that and it's a bunch of little choices that lead someone to be like murdering people or doing horrible things or selling drugs whatever it is and that was very much blue rune for me Mm -hmm. in that sense that not necessarily myself i could see myself doing all of these things but i was like oh in that situation like i could understand why this person is doing all those things and that's just good character building at some point which was fantastic i have a quick pushback yeah um so we talk about the common man and everything and then like how things can get messier as things go on yeah do we think that this I'm just saying, just just as a quick opinion, uh, or do we even think that this is a common man? Because I think that Blue Ruin has to do a lot more with destiny more so than anything because you have someone who, it almost appears like he's been waiting for this moment. He's yeah. been waiting for someone to tell him, hey, your parents' murder is getting out. Um, there's no dialogue at the beginning. And as the, and like Dom kind of said, there's there's the, the character development, but the character development is natural because he's been preparing for this moment for the, since the moment his parents died. He had the car battery ready to go. He yeah. Everything he was, yeah. He was, exactly. Yeah. He was prepared. He was ready to go. And then by the end of it, you know, he has, I don't want to say that he's, that he's like, you know, recited his lines of what he's going to say, but he has a general idea of what he's going to do. He's very, yes. um, there's a lot of things that, that happen throughout the movie um, that are intentional, and you can tell that he's been waiting for these moments, um, even after kind of the mess that happened at that kind of the the welcome home party for Wade, where things got messy after that. But he still looked like he was intentionally doing things because he's been preparing for this for the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. So, so 
when we're talking about every man, I think what we're actually talking about is identification mm -hmm. and our ability to identify with a protagonist or even just with a character there. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at Green Room, for example, we definitely identify with those characters strongly. Sure. And yet they are not every man. Mm -hmm. They are living off the grid in a lot of ways. They are anti-fascist punks, mm -hmm. right? The main characters. So I think one of the interesting things about the two films we watched is both deal with subcultures mm -hmm. that are outside of the main. We see that really clearly in Blue Ruin with uh, when he talks to his sister, her, she, she wants to call the police. Mm. She is confused as to why there is this this other world. Dwight inhabits his own world. Uh, the, the Clelands. Clelands. Mm. The Clelands inhabit their own world. Uh, and there are all these other worlds that we're not seeing yeah. that are outside the mainstream. Yeah. And so what Sonia is doing, I think, is causing us to identify with the uncommon rather than giving us a common man. Yeah, that that's hmm. a great point. And the consequences of allegiance to those subcultures, what it looks like to fight against mm -hmm. those subcultures, mm -hmm. is it possible to leave that? Yeah. And Dwight's sister in Blue Ruin is a potential idea of what it looks like to forsake that subculture or try to leave that. Mm -hmm. And one could argue to what degree she is successful in that. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely a more concrete uh, example of that in Green Room, where you have characters who are revealed to be explicitly trying to escape neo-Nazi culture. And now ping-ponging back to Blue Ruin, one of the characters who you almost kind of meet fleetingly in, in the first 15 minutes is revealed to have a very emotionally resonant uh an emotionally resonant part to play and he winds up silently forsaking that subculture and leaving that behind him hmm. and that that culture of revenge that culture of violence that culture of wrath he walks away from and because he is seen firsthand over and over and over again how violence leads to violence leads to violence leads to violence and just winds up decimating everything. Yeah. yeah. And in both films, these are subcultures that are particularly aimed as anti-mainstream culture. Yes. Right. So they're not just alternatives uh, as though, you know, we're going to go over here and create a different space for us. Uh, the punks, especially both the Nazi punks and the anti-fascist punks are against mainstream culture. And you see that in the lyric, the lyrics of Nazi punks fuck off, yeah. which is like, no, 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 no. Don't divide punctum. Yeah. You know, we need to be uh, fighting together against capitalism yes. and against mainstream society. The You're not fascist. The real fascists are the ones who are keeping you down. And when the Fourth Reich finally comes, you'll be the first to go. Yeah. So, Brent, you mentioned earlier that they, uh, you said something to the effect of he doesn't make, uh, Jeremy, uh, Sonia doesn't make a moral judgment on, I believe it was Dwight in Blue Room we were talking about, where he's just kind of going on his revenge thing. And he's not saying whether it's right or wrong. And I agreed with you. I do agree with you. There's two aspects, one in each film, that I'm still wondering if there are moral judgments that I make moral judgments on. One from The Green Room, which is neo-Nazis, and from Blue Ruin is gun ownership is probably too light. Maybe extreme gun ownership would okay. be yeah. a better term. I don't know the right term for it. Um, but but yeah, whatever the those two families have where it was just like AK-47s and Benny Benny's existence, right? Of just like owning all of those guns, some of them illegally, some of them not, that kind of thing. Uh, fringe gun ownership maybe is the right term for that. 
uh, where I make a moral judgment of my on myself of just like that. Those are two things that I am against. Mm-hmm. And I read into them at watching those films that that was Jeremy Sonier's morals as well to both of those films. Mm-hmm. Try to put myself in the other shoes with with gun ownership. I think if a gun owner watched Blue Ruin and saw that, he'd be like, yeah, that's crazy. I'm a safe gun owner. And that would be kind of a moral licensing to justify owning guns to either say, I would never own a gun like that. I would never, I would never know someone who owns a gun like that. That's so extreme and crazy. Or I'm glad I have guns because there are people out there like that. I need to protect myself. Two, two good reasons to own guns you know, or two, two reasons to justify owning guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if a neo-Nazi watched green room, if they could be like, yeah, I'm glad I'm not a neo-Nazi like that. I, yeah. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Well, and I'm, I'm completely with you. I think uh, gun ownership is the neo-Nazis. It's not an ambivalent portrayal at all. Right. It's negative towards okay. neo-Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Gun ownership, it's much more ambivalent. I think, uh, again, with you, I'm pretty anti-gun. And so more troubling for me is the fact that we see multiple portrayals of safe gun ownership that is portrayed as safe. So the gun that Dwight steals that has a lock on it, he is unable to get. Great example. Right? He That's breaks true. the gun trying to get the lock off. Yeah. Where does Benny keep his guns? They are all in a safe. Where do the Clelands? Clelands? Why the can't Clelands, I, Clelands, yeah. I? don't know why I can't handle yeah. that. Oh, in no. a shed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Clelands. <laughs> where do the Clelands keep their guns? Everywhere. everywhere under everywhere. the couch. Yeah. Literally under the couch at one point. Under the lazy boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Is there a chance that uh, contextually, the both of these movies, I think Blue Room was 2013, Green Room was 2015. Yeah. 2013 is right after Newtown. Yeah. yeah. Gun ownership, um, backgrounds, uh, all this other stuff is a huge, huge deal at this moment when the movie was made. Um, And then you look at the green room and talking about neo-Nazis, alt-right, all that stuff. That's all happening. This was filmed right before the election where it seemed like a lot more of this subgroup Charlestown um, started to yeah. yeah exactly started to write Charlestown is a great example because Charleston happened in 2015 yeah um, and you're starting to see not a rise but more um, it could be a rise but it, there's definitely more of an awareness and then they, them given a voice in a stage that they didn't have before correct yeah exactly so I'm wondering contextually what like what the timing of these movies really means I guess and uh, in terms of the rise of the alt-right uh, even though they came to more national problems uh, prominence in 2015-2016 there were a lot of subcommunities that saw them rising in 2013-2014 and even before that mm-hmm. uh, but within sci-fi authorship for example there was a huge right a huge rise of alt-right activity around the Hugo Awards with uh, the Sad Puppies campaign where a bunch of alt-right people tried to get neo-Nazi books uh, promoted because supposedly the only people who win book awards are and the line from them is this is from Vox Day who's a terrible person um, black lesbians are the only people who can win a book award. Um. Uh, and so therefore we need to, you know, help the white man. Meanwhile, Gamergate happened at a similar time, similar kinds of vibes. Uh, video games are all about feelings and social justice. And, you know, can't we just have games that are about games, which ended up also tying into a lot of really alt-right games and just alt-right hate at that same time. So there's been some good work over the last few years to tie both of those different uh, activities among subcultures into a larger movement that became the alt-right, uh, building across networks like Reddit, 4chan, 8chan, etc. Yeah, there are a lot of thoughts kind of pinging around. And I think what Sonia does really well is showing how human nature is amplified by the instruments you use. 
And so for the ain't rights, their aggression and anger and their desire to be away from the mainstream is amplified quite literally by their music. And there's this aggression and there's, there's all this uh, animosity toward mainstream culture. For neo-Nazi youth, there is, again, an anger and a hatred for particular people. And that's, in, that's something that's an internal choice and attitude. And they find a place to amplify and share and cultivate and grow that in a neo-Nazi youth. And for violent individuals, for people who believe in revenge and wrath and pe like it's 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 never lost on me that there's a kind of gun called a peacemaker yeah. and if that's a person's idea of peacemaking then that will like then violence will always be the end result yeah. and so guns in and of themselves guns are not magic yeah. if a gun sits on a table it's not going to fire by itself and so it's it's this person who is choosing to exact vengeance. This person has vengeance in their heart. Mm -hmm. And all they need is an instrument to exact that, to amplify that. And for the, the characters in Blue Ruin, they are going to exact vengeance. And there's a moment in at the, toward the end of Blue Ruin where Dwight is contemplating the idea of vengeance or violence and nonviolence. And he's been in, in the Cleveland house for a while and he's seen pictures of their family album and he knows that these are people with lives. And he sees the people come home and they're listening to voicemail and he has them in, in his sights ready to fire and, and kill them. And they're listening to the voicemail and he thinks for a second to not and he begins to turn away. And then he hears one of the characters saying that they're going to come and hunt his sister. And then he makes the choice to exact violence. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess just to say that it's at the end, it's, it's coming back to the people's, the person's choice to exact violence and pursue violence to that bitter end. And even to pursue hatred to that bitter end. Yeah. The one place I want to push back on that just a little bit is the idea of gun as instrument, as mm. though it's separable from the person holding it. Right. The emotions are in the person, the gun is just a completely passive tool. Yeah. Um, and this is because I write a lot about technology. I'm thinking a lot about technology. Technology is typically portrayed as a tool that has no ends in and of itself. Uh, we decide the ends. And those who study technology say, this is not so. Technology dictates the ends. It allows, it minimizes the possible outcomes, right? In other words, if he's sitting there behind the wall, and he doesn't have a gun in his hand, that's a very different scene. Correct. Um, and so the more interesting thing to me, I think we, when we think of guns and their effect on people, we typically think of the people being shot, right? Mm. We think of them on that end of the gun. What I'm more interested in in terms of technology as not an instrument is the effect on the person holding the gun. Yes. Which mm. is to give them a sense of power, Yeah. give them a sense of control, both of which they don't actually have. And this movie is about how guns do not give you control. Absolutely. Everything is out of control completely. And yet holding a gun and, you know, what does Benny say to Dwight when he gives him the gun that he finally uses is you look comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. we choose the gun based upon the one that will feel right in my hands. Yes. That's not a passive. The gun That's, chooses you. There's a relationship. You. Exactly. Yes. The yes. gun chooses you and it, it becomes part of your arm. 
It becomes part of who you are and it extends you. Uh, On the other hand, this is why uh, target practice uh, and sniper shooting is an incredibly meditative practice, right? There's a book about Zen and the art of archery uh, that the breathing practices you have to go to are very, very similar to meditation and actually are meditative. So this is not to say guns are evil, right? They can only do one thing. They limit the amount of choices that you have. Absolutely, yeah. That's a beautiful, beautiful point. I was wondering if the crossbow was kind of pushing oh, back against call. that too because it Ooh, definitely stood that. out. Yes. Yeah. And yes, the Clevelands are hunters, so it yeah. makes sense that they would have crossbow, bow and arrow, that kind of stuff. But to bring that, maybe it's just to give them options. They have a noisy option in the gun and a silent option in right. the, the bow and arrow or the crossbow. Uh, but that definitely stood out to me. I wonder if that was his way of saying, hey, this isn't an anti-gun movie. Right. This isn't anti-violent. Or this isn't making a moral judgment on guns. Right. This is just a way to inflict violence. Do we think that um, looking at the progression of weapons used, that this is mm. a advancement of technology? Because oh. the first weapon used was a knife. Yes. The second one he intended to use, Dwight was intending to use, was a pitchfork. Yeah. Wow. The third one uh, that we saw was a crossbow, and then eventually it turned into um, like automatic weapons. And it actually turns into semi-automatic because he pauses b- before the automatic, and he throws all the automatics in the lake. He won't take the automatic. Now, we do escalate mm. to an automatic in the very last scene. Right. That's the, the gun that's under the Lazy Boy. So we finally get that progression. If there's a message about technology, and particularly about guns, it's that semi-automatic rifles are okay. Mm-hmm. Automatics are not. Mm. Right? Because Dwight intentionally refuses the automatics. Mm-hmm. And the villain uses the automatics in the end. Right? And mm-hmm. fires indiscriminately, I think, shooting her, her daughter as right. she's shooting everything yeah. else in the room. Yeah, right. And yeah. Benny even <laughs> says that at one point. He's like, every time you pull the trigger, it fires one round. This, yeah. like, he defines what an he automatic or a semi-automatic yes. is. So yeah, that's true. That's a distinction they make in the film. I'm increasingly convinced of your point about Newtown. Uh, mm. That this is a consideration of guns. This all comes back to, um, I'm just thinking about the movies on a grander scale and just think about Sonya's approach to this. I think that in general for him to um, address, or I don't know who wrote the, 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 the films. I don't know who wrote the script for these. I believe he did. He wrote both of them. Okay, so, but then he, so then he also made them too. But these are very ambitious, courageous movies to make then born out of that, con- that uh, context because at the time, some of that stuff is still so brand new and fresh and raw, and to tackle those kind of issues is incredibly difficult to do. Um, so one other thing I wanted to talk about is... Both of these movies were really funny mm. at different points. Sure. And I, I can't put my finger on it, so I'm just opening this out to the larger audience, trying to remember the moments that we laughed at. But it feels like there's a particular nature to the comedy in these. Uh, it's not just about the juxtaposition of comedy and violence. There's something really particular about the way he uses humor. His first movie, which we haven't seen, uh, Murder Party, is a comedy. It's a dark comedy. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't look terribly good. I don't necessarily want to see it, but... Uh, you know, he he came up in comedy in a sense. Yeah. And so the way he uses comedy seems really, really deliberate in these movies. Yeah, like there, there was that moment where you're building tension in the first half of Blue Ruin where Dwight finally finds his sister and they go to the diner together. And there's they're talking about how he saw them at the pier and they're they're both shedding like a single tear as they're trying to get through this dramatic scene. Jay, you were saying how you started to tear up a little yeah. bit uh, and you're starting to finally learn, learn more about Dwight. And then all of a sudden, the person at the next table just goes, uh, you guys got any ketchup? I don't have any. <laughs> yeah. We all bust up. That was great. Totally yeah. breaks the tension. And it wasn't funny in the sense that like, what a clever line, but it was funny because it cut, you cut the tension. Exactly. Yes. That you yes. said. Yeah. I mean, that was a perfect way to just let us breathe. Going back to the pacing. I'm just like, okay, even though there's no violence in this scene, it's still building this, this tension that we needed a break from. And that was a perfect way to do it. 
there were a couple that were clever lines. Uh, yes. I'm thinking of the end of Green Room, um, <laughs> where they they say, Anshan Yel- Yelkin's character says, I thought we were going to a crime scene. <laughs> and Amber, oh, yes. the other character says, yeah, I thought we were going to start a new one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I think that balance of, of humor and violence, it works because it reminds you that we're still in like we're still in the same place. Yeah. Like we're not this isn't Tony Stark making a joke in the middle of a spaceship that's right. going to Thanos' home planet. Right. Like this is still the green room that we've been in a long time. This is still in the northwest in somewhere in Oregon. Like this is still the same place. And we're still very much in the moment. Like guns are still pointed at people, but these are still people that are that are having these moments together. And so it it revealed more humanity and just that yeah, that breaking of tension really, really played well. Yeah. Let's make a new one. That's good. That's a good line. Imogen mm-hmm. Poots. She's fantastic in that. Amber, right? Yeah. Amber. yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's make a new one. It's such oh. a great character to throw in there. I think it's funny how um, I'm thinking of two, you know, two specific funny moments in both movies. So one um, being in, in Green Room where they're talking about how um, if you could the Desert Island game, which we all yes. play, yeah. which is you know what we band played was, that on the trail. We literally just we just played yeah. that not 24 hours before yeah. watching this film. Uh, where we talked about uh, the the Desert Island book that we'd want to read forever, and this one became banned. You know, you know what what band would you want to listen to um, for the rest of uh, your time on Desert Island? And that kind of became a theme, not a theme, but it became a it's, re- a, it's re- a running gag. Exactly, running gag. I th- I personally thought at times it was corny, but at the same time it was still kind of this lighthearted like thing that was cut in the middle of a of a horror film, yeah. um, and it was something that we all do. Uh, and the other joke being um, from. Uh, Blue Ruin, which was, we've all been in a conversation in a restaurant. Like, I'm pretty sure at some point in my life, I've been in the middle of a breakup somewhere. Yes, yeah. And the waiter comes over like, yeah. would you like more water with, right. your, with your meal? Like, that stuff You're like happens. holding back tears. Yeah, and <laughs> no joke, like, er- everyone's gone through yeah. something like that. You're having an intense conversation with family, with friends, and someone comes over, whether it be another patron at the restaurant or a waitress or waiter, and they ask you for something, or they 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 try to see like, hey, is your meal going okay? Whatever, and you're like, it just stops everything. Yeah. Um, we've all been through those moments, and that's why it was kind of funny, is because it was so personal. Yeah. yeah. One thing I loved about the uh, the band running gag, uh, Desert Island band, is Aaliyah Shawkat's line, Simon and Garfunkel, mm-hmm. as. It shows them letting down their guards. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Early, they're all up. They're being interviewed. Yeah. And they're talking about, like, most important bands. What matters most to me? What made me who I am? I'm going to talk about the Misfits, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Dead Kennedys. I'm going to talk about punk. Uh, and I'm going to try to name a punk band that you've never heard of. Yeah. Yeah. Be obscure. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah. I'm faced with death. Mm-hmm. My desert island will last me just a few moments. Yeah. Let me be real honest with everyone and just say Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. yeah. And Prince. Prince. Prince, Prince <laughs> makes response. the cut. And <laughs> oh, Amber sense. Amber says Madonna and, and Slayer. Madonna yes. and Slayer is a great And the, right. the best yeah. payoff to that Desert Island joke is at the very end, mm. Anton Yelkin, you know, everything has kind of, the dust has settled. Yeah. And he says, I finally get it. I finally know what it is. Because he's been struggling the entire time. Can't make up his mind. And he says, oh. I know what it is. Amber says, what? He says, I know what my Desert Island band is. And she said, silent for a minute. And she says, tell somebody who gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Cut the end of the lot. movie. Yes. And again, just that, uh-huh. 
yes, it's it's a punk. Yes. So it's like fuck you yeah. and your rule of threes. Right. <laughs> but yes. it's also that subversion of expectation, which Sonya has done all throughout Blue Ruin and all throughout Green Room in those micro and macro ways of subverting how that the home aloneing of Blue Ruin goes and what that plan is and even how the pitchfork is going to be used. It's not used at all. He just books it out of the house. Yeah. And how the daughter's asthma. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that is there, but then not or Chekhov's even, inhaler. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but how the, the dog yeah. at the end of green room, uh, they they there's an attack dog and there are several intense scenes with attack dogs and there's an attack dog that that breaks free and he Sonia cuts back to the dog several times toward the end of the film and I'm thinking this is going to pay off in some in some form or fashion there's going to be one final attack the dog's going to save him the dog's going to kill him something and at the end the dog simply walks right past uh, Imogen and Anton and rests at the feet of its dead owner and just sits down. And again, for me, it mirrored that almost kind of forsaking of the subculture with William, like two creatures, two beings leaving that space and leaving that space of violence. And it's interesting that way of how subcultures are created and these particular ones are created around the idea of safety. Oh, yeah. The neo-Nazi culture, like, this culture will keep you safe. Yes. Guns will keep you safe. And all it seems to create in these particular movies is violence. Yeah. Imogene's line, uh, Amber's line, uh, you know, how could you become a neo-Nazi? And she says, the people who hurt me weren't white. It's all about safety. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So um, I think that about wraps it up. We nowhere near cover these movies no. fully because they're really, really, really rich films uh, i encourage you to all watch them if you haven't even though we spoil them they'll still be great uh also get excited for hold the dark which is coming out in the fall uh no date yet it was supposed to premiere premiere at cans uh yeah netflix and i'll say it again cans Can- uh, Canis. <laughs> the cannes uh, Can- film festival uh <laughs> gotten a little tiff and so the movie hasn't come out yet looks really good rest assured there will be a podcast about that because i'm super psyched yeah but uh yeah you can hit us up we're at at the Overthink. Uh, Overthink pod on all the social media, theoverthink.com. Yep. Uh, hit us up in various places. You can find each of us through those avenues uh, and our individual Twitter stuff. Uh, but to get us out of here, I thought we would do our own Desert Islands uh, oh, nice. and keep it literary. Uh, Desert Island book. Uh, we'll start, uh, Brent, what's your Desert Island book? One book for the rest of your life. Jeez. Uh, you're you're kind of catching me off guard. Um, Dumb. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll, come we'll come back to you. Okay. Sorry. I'll okay. give you a second, Brent. Uh, Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Cool. Good. Nice. Yeah. Wait, sentence about it or why? Uh, it's, if I'm honest, it's the last book that made me cry. Oh, nice. Cool. And it's, it's a beautiful story. Uh, gives you space to engage with characters and feel. Uh, Wendell Berry is one of my favorite writers. A beautiful, beautiful storyteller. And yeah, it's, it's a book that I'll always remember. Uh, I'll go Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Uh, fiction book, fantasy-ish book. Um, yeah, that that is, I've read it so many times and it's just a book that talks to, speaks to growing up, adolescence, but also adulthood by the end of it. It's a pretty long book, so it kind of goes over this person's whole life. Strength becoming weaknesses, weaknesses becoming strengths, just kind of speaks 
I think because it's such a broad book that can speak to so many parts of my life is why I feel like every time I read it, I get an entirely new book. So. Yeah. I'd go uh, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. Um, and it's not going to have necessarily the same kind of emotional effect uh, as either of the previous two ones. It does have that here and there, uh, it, but it's a postmodern formalist tome. And so the idea for me is if I'm on a desert island, I'm going to get bored. And Gravity's Rainbow to me is the perfect book for boredom because I can always find yeah. new puzzles. I can always find new things. It's the kind of book that you want to like apply the Bible code to or something like that. And look for acrostics in. Like it's just it's just a real cool dense book for me that I, that I feel I could always find some new. Things. All right, Brent, give me some time. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I, I think I finally finally figured it out. Tell somebody who gives a shit. Oh, <laughs> is that too harsh a way to end an episode, or is that okay? Thanks for listening to Overthoughts, a part of the Overthink Podcast Network. Uh, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Podcast Network. And if you're really feeling generous, go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes. That would really help us out in a big way uh, and would help us create more content to share with you as well. So as always, you can check out our website at overthinkpod.com. And our handle is at overthinkpod pretty much everywhere else. So go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram and like us on Facebook. And that would help us by spreading the word. Uh, We're always interested in hearing from listeners. So please drop us a line and let us know what you think of the show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe even if you want to suggest uh, some topics for us to cover on a podcast, that'd be great. You can email us at overthinkpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for stopping by.